If you will reach forward in that pew just in front of you and get your pew Bible out, I'm going to do something a little unusual tonight and ask you to read some scripture with me. Your pastor, Muzan Biggs, has assured me you all know where to find Psalm 23. And just in case there's some visitors tonight who are not members of Boston Avenue, it's page 501. (laughs) I love hearing the sound of pages flipping in a church. Thank you. Here's how I would like for us to proceed. I will read verse 1, and then if you will read verse 2, I will read verse 3, and we will alternate throughout. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is the word of the Lord. Just a few moments of catching up with one another. Um, Thank you for that beautiful introduction, but I have to tell you, you don't want any of the cookies I would make. (laughs) You know, last night after the sermon, in a crush of handshakes and hugs and love, it was like a big love-in in the parlor. But there was one consistent critical feedback that I received, and these are the words. We wanted more. (laughs) Well, tonight, you're going to get more. You may need a seventh inning stretch in tonight's sermon. Also, I want you to know that in my introduction to preaching courses, Muzan Biggs is required listening and watching. On January the 3rd, it was either 1998 or 1999, my birthday. I was sick and I was feeling sorry for myself. I couldn't go to church. I was at home and I thought, hey, maybe Muzan will help me feel better. So I turned on my television and unfortunately I missed the beautiful music. He was in the middle of announcements. I couldn't believe it. He was doing exegesis even in the announcements. <laughs> I called out to my husband in the other room, Joe, you've got to get in here. Muzan does exegesis even in the announcements. So that when I assign this specific videotape to my students, I insist, do not fast forward to the sermon. Listen to the announcements. And then you may go to the sermon. My gratitude to Muzan is profound. He makes my job as professor of homiletics so much easier. His impact on the art and integrity of preaching is inestimable, and also his brilliant command of scholarship and scripture is truly enviable.
We all live in gratitude and indebted to him for what he has done for preaching in the United States of America. Amen. But like Paul Harvey, here's the other half of the story. You are so not going to believe what he did to me Sunday morning. It's 11 o'clock worship. I am back at the back of the sanctuary praying, trying to speak to the Lord and have the Lord give me a word. Muzan leans over and says, try not to think about the quarter of a million people watching you once more. And he repeated it, 250,000. <laughs> I want you to know that tomorrow night I will be preaching on gossip, and there's not a toe in the room I won't stand on, um, including my own will be stepped on, so you're all really invited to come back. And again, tonight's sermon, um, I said in the newsletter, it's on, on a difficult topic. It is on conflict. On enemies, and so I'm going to ask you to lift me in prayer as we begin this sermon. Will you pray with me? Well, God, you ask us to attend to difficult things now, um, and we pray with your help that we will have enough courage to explore one of the areas that you are guiding and leading us now. In Jesus' name. Video cameras caught the unfolding tragedy in Iraq. A handful of American Marines accidentally destroyed a car carrying an extended family of Iraqis. You know what happened. The Iraqis misunderstood the Marines' hand signals to stop. Three adult brothers, their wives and children, and the patriarch father were in this car. And two of the three brothers and the patriarch, their father, were killed. The TV cameras zoomed in for a close-up of the incinerated car and then a close-up of the wives grieving and wailing on the side of the road. Next, the camera caught what was written on the faces of those five American Marines. Shock, disbelief, and horror was written on their faces. We continue to watch anxiously, and the camera records the one surviving Iraqi male walking toward the Marines, and we fear violence. We fear what will happen next. But he opens his mouth, and he asks them something. We can't hear what, but seemingly inexplicably next, the Marines, their young faces caked with dust and streaming tears. They gently, all caught on video camera, place these three dead Iraqi bodies in body bags. Load them and their surviving Iraqi family members onto the Marines' Humvee. Then they speed off into the desert and CNN covers quickly behind where after several minutes a mosque rises on the horizon. 
we realize the Iraqi man has asked those Marines to help him bury his dead brothers and father. And those American Marines begin digging three graves in the hard, unforgiving, rocky desert soil. They have those collapsible camp shovels, too small for such a job. The children, the Iraqi children, reach in and they pull out dirt one handful at a time, helping prepare the graves for their uncle, their fathers, their grandfather. The Marines lay the Iraqi bodies to rest with the sun rapidly disappearing on the horizon. And the Iraqi man who just buried his two brothers and his father turns to the Marines and we see his words from his lips saying in English, thank you. And then CNN microphones arrive and we hear him say, this was not your Iraqi man's righteousness stands like the cedars of Lebanon. His righteousness stands those American Marines a chance of recovering their humanity for a mistake they might have lived their whole lives never recovering from. And that Iraqi man's righteousness stands those fatherless Iraqi children a chance of life more abundant instead of a life distorted by hate. The wrong was not undone. Yet everything was changed by the words of one righteous man who prepared a table in the presence of what should have been his enemies. Theologian Douglas John Hall says that when God wants to change the world, God doesn't pull strings from outside history. Rather, when God wants to change the world, God sends a voice. Like a composer adding one voice to a musical score. God sends a voice. That Iraqi man's voice changed everything. It's holy work. Setting tables for enemies. In the presence of our enemy, we set tables with words. That is our vocation as followers of Christ. Setting tables in the presence of enemies. But who is our enemy? And why in this wonderful psalm, why is an enemy mentioned at all? On the one hand, we need to recall, as Fred Craddock would say, that when we read this psalm, we're simply overhearing an intimate prayer of gratitude for God's providence. The author, David, by tradition, is recounting God's favor even in the presence of enemies. Although perhaps even the psalm suggests this, that the sign of God's favor and abundance actually preserved the peace. Here's how it went. 
presumably after seeing God's favor as well as Israel's great abundance, Israel's enemies would hesitate, in fact, probably not ever attack. That's the logic. But there's a more troubling reading of this text. You're probably familiar with it. If read through a lens of presumed national superiority or religious superiority or racial superiority, then this text does something quite different. It becomes a proof in a game of one-upmanship. You have set a table before me in the presence of my enemies, as if to say, you've shown my bad old enemies that you favor me. And so this remarkable psalm can become, sadly enough, proof of national superiority over other nations or religious superiority over other religions. Nonetheless, I've got to tell you, when I saw that gripping scene unfold between those Marines and that Iraqi man, this is the phrase that ran to my mind. I saw a table being set in the middle of the desert. The table that's set in the sight of my enemies that I'm talking about clearly is not a table set with fruit, baguette, cheese, and chocolate. But rather the table I'm talking about is set with courage and hope for reconciliation. I knew I would be preaching this sermon on President's Day. And as I prayed over the sermon, President Lincoln's second inaugural kept coming to mind, in which we hear the words of a great president who knows how to set a table in the midst of enemies. Listen to Mr. Lincoln's table blessing to a devastatingly divided nation of enemies. Mr. Lincoln's words. Both sides read the same Bible. Both sides pray to the same God, and each invokes God's aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. And then listen as Mr. Lincoln sets a table for reconciliation. With malice toward none with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up our nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves, and among all nations. Lincoln saw God at work, busily setting a table among the United States that had become enemies north and south of one another. Binding up the nation's wounds, as we know, tragically did not happen. Lincoln was assassinated. His vision did not come to fruition. North politicians punished South politicians in acts of reconstruction, using Northern victory to humiliate rather than to heal. 
I cannot help but wonder, oh, Tulsa, if Lincoln had lived, if Lincoln had continued setting a table in the presence of enemies, I cannot help but wonder if the tragedy, the scandal of our own Tulsa race riot might never have been. Nevertheless, what Lincoln knew, having read scripture so long and so well, was what Jesus knew long before Lincoln. Enemies, whether they are from within or without, can twist even our own religious impulses into self-protection rather than caring for all. You remember that for Jesus and for the earliest Jewish Christians, the enemy, of course, was the Roman occupation of their land. It is a misery being occupied by an enemy. George W. Bush, in discussing the Iraq War early on, and still now, President Bush acknowledges none of us wants to be occupied by another nation. But sometimes it's not always the result of a foreign army in one's homeland. Sometimes the occupying enemy is within our very selves. Think about so many of Jesus' teachings in which he was convincing people to look within their own lives and be less self-preoccupied with the enemy without and focus on the enemy within. Think of it. Who should sit at the left or the right of Jesus? Think of the self-preoccupation with, now Jesus, exactly how many times did you have in mind for us to forgive Or think of the self-preoccupation even of, who sinned that this man was born blind, Jesus? Jesus continually turned self-preoccupied religious notions outward. And he kept saying, "Um, would you please pay attention to the orphan's anguish? Would you please pay attention to the widow's loneliness? Would you please offer hospitality to the strangers that sojourn with you? Now, the church can be a remarkably fertile petri dish for cultivating the enemy that occupies from within. Can we just say amen? As a baby pastor, I was first called to a church in Fort Worth, Texas, which will remain nameless, but whom I love to this day. And I wrestled mightily with an occupying force within myself as a baby pastor. I brought with me what I like to think of as a healthy self-confidence from graduate school into my first church. I just knew I could change the world and save the church in just under 30 days. I like to think of it as my own purpose-driven church. Muzan probably already knows what happened. Within my first few weeks there, I managed to mightily offend a few members. (laughs) Three of my enemies were women who, every time I stood up to preach, turned their faces from the pulpit to face the wall, so I preached. 
to their shoulder. So much for healthy self-assurance. Seized by old enemies of self-doubt and fear, I began to lose sight of the 397 church folk that had showed up to hear me preach, and I only saw the three. Like an occupying force, my detractors distracted me from my work as a spiritual leader. Worse, I allowed them to undermine the ability to risk my very best for God. So, I sought counsel from the church elders. They said they hadn't picked up on anything being wrong. (laughs) I wish you could hear me song, right? (laughs) So, and they thought I wanted reassurance, so they were very quick to reassure me. Next, I went to a very respected deacon whom I loved. I asked him to actually go with me to visit each detractor in their home so I might find a way to repair what was broken between us. At the home of the first two detractors, they looked very puzzled. There's nothing wrong between us. I'm unaware of anything broken between us. I must confess to you, good Christians, I ran home and looked up passive-aggressive in my pastoral care dictionary. (laughs) Then, finally, I was reduced to prayer. Reduced to trying, lastly, what I should have done Every time I felt my insecurity or I felt their rejection of me, I prayed a very simple prayer. Nothing can keep us from the love of God. Not my insecurity, not your rejection. Bless me, God. Bless my beloved detractor. Now, 18 months after my prayer vigil's beginning, did you hear 18 months? (laughs) One of my detractors lay in wait for me at the end of a very, very long educational hall in this beautiful church. And no, it wasn't one of those three women who had shunned me, but it was one of the men who had not spoken to me or made eye contact in 18 months. And he was on the church board and the church council. It was really something. Now, you need to know before I finish this story that many of you have noticed when my husband and I were first married, we hyphenated our names. I was Kay Bessler Northcat, which is still on the cover of the prayer book you are buying of mine, and I am signing for you in these days. So you need to know I had a hyphenated name then, and now we're ready to proceed. That morning, finally, that man spoke to me, and I have a verbatim to share with you. I don't like you. I don't like your politics. I don't like your highfalutin, fancy, double last names. I don't like your ideology. I do not like your inclusive language or your feminism, and I sure don't like the influence you have over my teenage daughter. I have tried for two years to ignore every word that you have preached. Then his eyes filled with unshed tears, his voice cracked, and he said to me, but the thing is, 
You have a pure heart. And God has spoken to me in every word you've said for two years. And today I need to tell you, you are my pastor. In the presence of our enemies with enough prayer, tables are set. Theologian Douglas John Hall says, when God wants to change the world, God doesn't do it from the outside pulling strings. Rather, God changes the world in the same way a composer adds a new voice to a composition. Add a voice, it changes everything. And I think it's your voice. Sometimes, friends, religion itself, when it gets sifted through our imperfect human hands, is the enemy. The world's religions themselves, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, are too often at enmity with one another throughout our world. Theologian Hans Kung observed, and we should all memorize this one, There can be no peace between peoples until there is peace between religions. Our religious differences and the fundamentalisms that they multiply have birthed an enemy named terrorism. Are there tables to be set there? Are there words? Is there a voice to speak there? In Tulsa, we are in the midst now of the trialogue. It is celebrating 25 years of setting a table between religious traditions. Catholics, Protestants, Jews, and most recently Muslims sit around a table and talk. We are adding a voice, Tulsa. We are adding to a voice to a culture that too often only knows how to divide. One of the great gifts of Tulsa is this important and enduring work in our religious communities. And I am grateful to Reverend Dr. Muzan Biggs for his courageous and eloquent leadership in setting that table in Tulsa for decades. In honor of that trilogue, I want you to come away with me for a moment to Israel. We'll start by flying to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. (laughs) And then we'll take a plane to, let's see, International Airport in New York City. Then to Tel Aviv. And finally, we arrive in Jerusalem where this morning and every morning before dawn, A group of Israeli women arose, and they made their way to Border Patrol checkpoints. These checkpoints are scattered throughout the occupied territories where entry and exit to Israel and Palestine areas are strictly controlled. These Israeli women stand in blistering desert sun all day. Picture it. Israeli women standing next to Israeli border guards, not as their allies, but as 
protectors of the Palestinian women whom those Israeli border guards will search. This group of Israeli women keeps watch in the desert. And you know what they're watching for? The dignity and the well-being of women who are supposedly their enemies. There's a name of this organization. I urge you to go home and Google it. It's Maxom Watch. M-A-C-H-S-O-M-W-A-T-C-H. It began as a response to the second intifada in September of 2000, and it continues to this day. Listen to this. These women decided that since their national leaders seemed incapable of making peace, they would seek peace. Every day, they stand burning up hot in the desert, setting a table in the midst of their enemies. It's holy work. Now I need you to back travel in time all the way back to Tulsa. Three springs ago, the great civil rights leader and president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Julian Bond, spoke in Tulsa. Can you believe the people we have come to Tulsa? Immediately following Bond's lecture, someone asked him, Mr. Bond, you have devoted over 50 years of your life to this struggle. And so little about racism has changed. How on earth do you keep hope? Mr. Bond was stopped for a few moments. Then he said, you know, I was in Los Angeles, and a student there showed me a picture of Rodney King being beaten. Then another picture of the riots that followed, and this student said to me, Nothing has changed in America. And I had to correct him. Back in the days of the civil rights protest, there was a Rodney King being beaten or lynched on every other corner. And nobody was taking a picture of it. And even if they had, nobody would have noticed. Bond continued. There is progress. There is progress every time one of us stands up and says no to bad behavior. Stand up. Stand up and say no to bad behavior. Things do change. It's hard to imagine anything smaller than standing up and saying no to bad behavior. Sometimes that's what setting a table is. Sometimes setting a table means we say no. We're going to run back to a rock for one minute. You remember Abu Ghraib? Did you hear about the three U.S. soldiers at Abu Ghraib who stood up and said no to the mistreatment of the detainees? I want you to hear their names. David Sutton. William Kimbrough and Joseph Darby. These three men 
refused orders to participate in the abuse. The New York Times broke this story of the three men who stood up and said no to bad behavior. Now, in the same article, the New York Times noted, For many years, scholars have pondered the odd ethical individual. But psychologists believe such persons are guided by a strong moral compass. And previous experiences in determining their own destiny through small actions like saying no along the way in their development. Small acts, yet profound Make room in us to set a table when the greatest courage is required. When God seeks to change human history, God doesn't do it from the outside as if pulling strings. God enters into history with our voices. I know three miracles in our lifetime. Three miracles that happened because voices set tables in the midst of enemies. Remember the miracle of nonviolence that peacefully integrated those lunch counters in the Nashville, Tennessee, Woolworth store in the United States? That began with a group of peaceful people saying no. And it started the entire desegregation process, integration process of the United States of America. What about, do you remember the miracle of nonviolence called solidarity that broke the oppressive dominance of communism in the shipyard in Gdansk, Poland? And what about the miracle in our lifetime, exemplified in the peaceful end of apartheid in South Africa, when Bishop Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, and so many others said, not revenge, no, but peace for all South Africans. When God wants to change the world. God sends a voice. A voice to set tables in the midst of enemies. Have you used your voice 